Today is Tuesday, November 15th, 2011. This is the Arabist podcast. Uh, with me today, uh, I'm Sandra Alamarni. Uh, as always, Ashraf Khalil. Hello. Ursula Lindsay. Hi. And today we want to talk about two main things. One, the, the, the recent announcements by the Arab League that, that it will be suspending Syria's membership, uh, announced last Saturday, I think implemented uh, yesterday. Um, and uh, and two, we're going to begin what should be a pretty prolonged coverage over the next few podcasts, uh, our coverage of um, Egypt's parliamentary elections. Our potentially hopeless attempt to understand and explain mm. Egypt's parliamentary elections. Yeah. We're going to try, people. But We're going to try to ex- explain the inexplainable and uh, these incredibly confusing, uh, badly prepared elections. Uh, I, there's some things that we still won't be able to, I think, fully explain. There's some things that we still don't know, but we'll give it a shot <laughs> as a public service. But first, uh, Syria. Uh, Syria. Ashraf, you, you went, I think, to the Arab League last Saturday. You, you, you I was covering on... the, the vote there on, on Saturday, and it was, it was very interesting. It was... It was um, I mean, the end result, as, as most of our listeners know, know is that the, the Arab League voted, not unanimously, uh, the, but, but, but voted to suspend, temporarily suspend Syria's membership in the organization. And the, uh, that wasn't too huge of a shock. What, what was surprising to me was some of the other things that, that, that were in the, the, the resolution that was eventually adopted in that they endorsed... Uh, political and economic sanctions against uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime. Did, did they mention what kind of sanctions exactly? They did not get or? into specifics, and I don't know that they necessarily, as an organization, have the juice to personally do anything, but they certainly kind of um, opened the door to that and, 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 and advocated the idea, and they called on the member states to withdraw their ambassadors which really surprised me. I was reading the, the the resolution in Arabic, and I thought that I was messing up the Arabic because it couldn't be saying what it was saying. This was this was quite an aggressive step by the Arab League. We've all, the three of us, have covered the Arab League for years, and we're rather familiar with it being a fairly toothless and useless organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally remember covering Arab League summits, emergency summits, in advance of the uh, the invasion of Iraq. And I, I will never forget spending a day at the Arab League where all the foreign ministers got together and stood as one and voted that no Arab country will assist a foreign power in, in, in the invasion of another Arab country. <laughs> and it was a lie the minute they said it. It was like, there's at least three countries that we knew of at that time that were actively and openly helping the U.S. prepare for its invasion. And it just didn't matter. Just like nothing mattered and black was white and night was night is day and nothing that they did mattered and they seemed to know it. And obviously their involvement in the peace process, I guess nobody has really managed to get much friction on or much motion on the, the peace process. So maybe they can't be blamed for that. But this was unusually decisive and aggressive from the Arab League to the point where all I can think of, I came out of it with two possibilities in my mind. One was that the Arab League had just gotten angry 
at the Syrian government because they had negotiated this ceasefire amidst a lot of hype and gotten uh, the Syrians just remember on board. For the past month, I mean, uh, uh, for the past, at least I think six weeks, Nibel Arabi, the uh, Secretary General of the Arab League, has been conducting shuttle diplomacy. He's been going to Damascus, talking to uh, the Syrian government, to, 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 to Bashar al-Assad, to talking to some representatives, I think, of the Syrian opposition. The, I think mostly from the opposition that remains in Syria, people like Michel Kilo and so on, uh, and you know, hammering out some kind uh, of deal that basically for the violence to end, for some kind of national unity government to be formed, and for uh, uh, early uh, free uh, elections that would determine the course of, of some of, sort uh, of reform or transition. Know, some, some, some kind of transition plan. The Syrians accepted this. I think part of the opposition accepted this, but then, you know, it's been continuously now about 20 to 30 uh, people killed every day uh, in Syria with the peak on Fridays during the big mm -hmm. demonstrations that usually follow funerals. Um, so yeah, the only the only happened. two theories that I came out of this with was that that a the Arab League felt personally embarrassed by the fact that they had put they had organized this ceasefire that was immediately disregarded by the Assad regime and this was sort of like a fit of pique and they they they, they felt he'd he'd used them or showed them up or the other possibility in my mind and I'm sure there's others that I haven't thought of but is that they think he's going down and they're trying to get on the winning side that that you know or they the want him to put or they won't push him down because right now he seems to be fairly sure I and mean, there's good parts of syria that are rebelling but uh you know it still has and there's a, there's a few uh defectors from the army and mm -hmm. so on but you know aleppo and, and, and damascus are still firmly in regime hands uh militarily the regime still has the advantage there hasn't been any massive senior defections from the army. Uh, I think the, the defectors are can be counted. In, in, in this is what I'm saying. From, from, I mean, from the outside, this doesn't necessarily... I would not say that the regime is crumbling or anything like that. They're on the defensive and they're having to react to this, but they don't seem like they're losing just yet. And maybe the... The Arab diplomats know things we don't know from the inside, but they they're, they seemed like they were trying to pick the winning horse and had decided that the Assad regime was not yeah. going to survive this. Yeah, and let's remember also Qatar currently has, I think, the presidency of the Arab League. Qatar and they were, they were really pushing, pushing this hard. The, the, the Qatari foreign minister was the guy who gave the press conference and, and gave the most outspoken uh, comments. That was my question, was what, which of the Arab states are, were the ones that were most behind this motion and which were the ones that were most reluctant? If you look at the voting record, I think only, uh, obviously, Syria, Lebanon, which does what Syria tells it to do, yes. and, 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 Yemen, and Yemen, which is in a similar position as Syria, voted against. Iraq abstained probably because it's on its borders and it doesn't want the trouble. Iraq just doesn't want the headache. Yeah. And also, of course, Iraq's government is close to Iran, which is an ally of, uh, mm -hmm. of Syria. And, and that, that, that's a really surprising thing to me. 
all the other 18 members of the Arab League voted in favor of this, uh, including countries like Algeria, like Sudan, that have a history of voting against anything like this out of principle because they defend the, you know, for them, state sovereignty go, trumps everything else. And uh, my understanding of, from what's happened in the Algerian press is that actually the, the foreign minister of Qatar threatened the foreign minister of Algeria over this. Really? Much more reluctant. And, and told him something to the effect of, uh, of uh, careful if you don't, uh, you know, toe the line now. When it comes to you next time, we won't be. Uh, you know. This is this is being reported in the Algerian this media. This is what's being reported in the Algerian media. I don't know whether it's true. Okay. But, 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 but it's a bit telling. I mean, for Algeria to take that kind of decision. Remember, Algeria was very much against the Libya intervention. Yes, of course, that's next door to it, and may still suffer consequences from all the weapons being that flooded Libya and so on. Mm -hmm. but, but more than that, you know, Algeria, this regime that's based on, you know, whose foundational uh, uh, myth is, is about resisting colonialism and imperialism, is very weary of any, anything that would go in, in the direction of, and this is the question that's being posed now, is, okay, so if we're going to be tough on Syria, how tough are we going to be? Are we headed towards a military intervention? Uh, well, the Qatari, the Qatari foreign minister in his comments dismissed uh, the possibility of foreign intervention said so that, that that that's not what we're talking about here at all. So that's worth noting. The 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 other notable thing is that not everybody who voted yes for this is necessarily going to follow through on all the points. As you said, eighteen countries voted yes, but already today, the Egyptian foreign minister and the Algerian foreign minister both flatly stated that they would their countries would not be withdrawing their ambassadors. To my knowledge at this point, unless I'm missing something, no Arab country has actually withdrawn its ambassador yet. Uh, but there has been a... Uh, There's a security issue now because embassies, Arab embassies were attacked. Not just Arab embassies. In the, in in the last few days, the, the, the embassies and consular buildings of France, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, interestingly enough, were all attacked by protesters. And... Um, We'll see where that goes. It sounds like it seems like relations between Turkey and Syria and Turkey, as we've discussed previously here, Turkey is one of the main interlocutors or main liaison countries with the Assad regime. And they seem to be the, the, those relations seem to be getting worse by the day. So that all produces an increasingly isolated Assad regime, although the Egyptians, in announcing that they would not withdraw their ambassadors, said that the reason they're not is because it's important to have lines of communication at this point. So I, I, what I'm wondering with all this is what's the, uh, you know, what's the end game? So they say they don't want military intervention, but, you know, we're seeing people, certainly in the U.S. and, and, and in Egypt, starting to agitate in that direction. And even people who are not, you know, particularly neoconservative or, or in love with uh, military intervention, uh, my friend Steve Cook at the Council of Foreign Relations on his blog just kind of posted about that. I challenged him to, you know, he said, okay, we need, we need to do more on Syria. I challenged him to, to give some more, um, you know, so, so some options there. And I think he's, gonna, he's traveling that way. He's going to write more in the next blog post. I mean, what to do on Syria? You know, I don't think it's necessarily a choice between either you have a Libya-like uh, military intervention or you do nothing.
uh, there's all kinds of options in between mm-hmm. from the economic sanctions that are already hitting Syria. They're already hard. being hit with sanctions. Uh, They're already a hugely isolated economy. There's only so much you can sanction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, that is one strategy, is that the, the, the economic sanctions are being fairly effective in depleting Syrian reserves because they're preventing money, hard currency, from coming in, but they're not preventing it from going out. Mm-hmm. So I think within a few months, Syria hits a we can't import basic items anymore scenario. The other thing is, is this, you know, this all this diplomatic activity sending the message to within the Syrian regimes is... To, 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 to that, hey, if you assassinate Assad, if you get rid of the Assads and top regime officials, we can do business again. Because I, I, I wouldn't be surprised I, if those messages yeah. are being quietly sent yeah. and have been for a while, possibly. And, and the fact that that, that that creeps, like, actually from the Assad family, people like, uh, I think, Rufat Assad and his sons and so on are involved in elements of the Syrian opposition coming again. Uh, 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 as a few years ago did Abdel Halim al-Khaddam who was the vice president of Syria and then defected basically and started advocating the overthrow of Assad I mean so you have these people former regime people who who, who are presenting themselves now as as okay we know how to run this country we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll come in and then you have the you know the, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood and, and genuine uh, other genuine uh, well speaking of the Syrian opposition one of the one of the again interesting and possibly unprecedented things we're seeing is that today the Arab League representatives met with representatives of the Syrian opposition. I mean, we now seem to have the Arab League actively conspiring to bring down or at least force change Mm -hmm. upon the Assad regime. And I'm not sure we've seen this. I consider what happened with Libya when they suspended Libya's membership and gave the green light to uh, to the, the NATO no-fly zone. Libya, as in most Libyan things, was a unique case just because Muammar Gaddafi had spent the last 15 years being alienating. Pretty, being pretty unique himself. Being pretty unique himself, openly embarrassing the regime, just showing up at, at Arab League meetings just to basically announce on the live microphone that everyone there is some sort of a sellout and an agent and this is all a joke. So it's it wasn't a shock that the organization cut him loose at one of the first available opportunities. This, to me, is a shock. And I'm, 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 I'm curious if this maybe represents... A new role, possibly for the first time ever, a positive role to be played by the Arab League. I'm, 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 I'm curious to see if they, if they're kind of rebranding or actually trying to do some good for the region. And it, 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 it no, you know, maybe no, it's no good can come out of that place. It's the Arab Spring. Maybe, maybe, maybe they yeah. have, they're, they're scared. I, they're scared of their people, and people yeah, who are scared of their people make different decisions. I, I can't believe that the Arab League has suddenly discovered that uh, regimes are killing people and torturing people and so on, and that's what they're. They're afraid of. I don't think. I'm trying to find an explanation for what they did on Saturday. Well, there's various explanations. There's various, you know, I mean, it's all a conspiracy at some level or another, and there's various conspiratorial explanations. One is that this is a, a push towards a regime change in, in Syria, encouraged by the Gulf states, as a way to, to you know, they're feeling the, the region is extremely unstable. They're seeing uh, increasing threats. An in, they perceive an increasing threat from Iran, from the nuclear weapons program, a possibility that Israel will uh, uh, carry out some kind of uh, uh, attack on the weapons program or even the United States. And they want to cut off a, uh, a major 
important ally of Iran now. And right. You, so, so, so that's, 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 that's another possibility. Change in like Syria now. A, a, Gulf, a Gulf-backed move to weaken yeah. what is perceived as a Saudi proxy yeah. or, and, Saudi, um, or, or an Iranian proxy. Yeah. And they state. want to replace that, that you know, and some people say they want to replace the Assad regime by the Muslim Brotherhood, which would be a Qatari-Saudi proxy. That's one you know, theory that's out there. The other thing is is what some people, I think Alistair Crook of the Conflicts Format, I disagree with him, but this is the, I think the, he has this kind of like great game uh, um, uh, theory of Turkey pushing, again, you know, overthrowing this pro-Iranian regime in Damascus mm-hmm. uh, as part of a Sunni Shia Muslim Brotherhood versus the, the, the mullahs. Uh, type of uh, uh, we we you know, can't we can't forget war. the historical Sunni Shia context, context of course which is which is very real in the minds of many Arab governments not just in the Gulf states I remember um, you know pre pre revolution fr- uh, friends mm. and colleagues of mine meeting with Gamal Mubarak and other uh, high level Egyptian government people. And they were ranting about Iran, like they they spent half their time talking about Iran. I think you can never forget that most most Arab leaders are retrograde bigots. <laughs> it's an important aspect of understanding them. Uh, but um, you know, I think whatever whatever uh, happens in Syria, you know, and there's another simpler explanation: is this like one last the last ditch attempt to put massive pressure on Syria? To get it to go back to the Arab League's initiative, and 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 actually, you know, produce something in the next few days. Otherwise, it'll be too late. And then, uh, when you're seeing what Ahmed Davutoglu, uh, the the Turkish um, foreign minister, is saying uh, today in Rabat, uh, where where there's a, today and tomorrow, I think there's a just a big conference on the issue. It's pretty out there, you know. He's saying this is the last straw. We we, we gave the Syrians a chance. And they, they blew it. And what does that mean? So where does Turkey go next? Does it, is it going to start providing, which is what some Syrians want, uh, a safe zone in northern Syria? Is it going to uh, take military action? Uh, and, you know, I was in Turkey a few weeks ago and uh, speaking to Turks, people who do business with Syria, people who um, are close to, to the AK party and to, 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 to the government. Uh, and there's a, there was a real ambivalence, and I think that in that issue, when I was there two weeks ago, that issue was very much unresolved. It was partly because Erdogan's mother had recently died, so that a bunch of political events and where he was supposed to take a position on this were cancelled. Um, and um, uh, he, he, you know, have the Turks made a decision? That's the other thing. I, I, they were very ambivalent and going back and forth before. You know, making threats, but not then, then uh-huh. not, not 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 carrying out their threats. Have the Turks made a decision one way or another that Assad must go? And are they willing also to put themselves in the danger of not only having this collapsing country next to them, but on top of it, of the Syrian regime almost certainly using the Kurdish questions against them? That's the Turkish. The Turkish situation is very interesting because the Turks do seem to be getting fed up with Syria, but a liberated Syria would. Have, would come with it 
a whole bunch of liberated Syrian Kurds who yeah. would naturally feel an affinity towards their fellow Kurds in Iraq and their fellow Kurds in Turkey and, and even extending to Iran. It would be one more piece of the puzzle. I mean, I lived in Iraq for two years, so... Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with the Kurds, and they're they're a patient folk, and they feel like time is on their side. So that would, uh, you know, I'm sure Turkey is taking that into their calculations. But they do the Turkey and the Arab League both sound like they're getting fed up with Syria. So that takes us into interesting territory. I'm fed up with Syria too. Okay, with Turkey, the Assads. I, I'm, Turkey and the Arab League and, and Ursula. Ursula. <laughs> Are you going to withdraw your consulate? <laughs> withdraw your ambassador? Well, I think that's where we're, I mean, that, that's, that's the situation. I mean, stay tuned for, for more on this. This is going to keep, this seems to be developing daily. I mean, yeah. the Syrians are reacting and people are reacting to Syria's reaction. And uh, we'll and no, see. No doubt, actually, the Egyptian government <coughs> will be happy if something happens in the next few weeks in Syria because it will overshadow and draw attention away from these ridiculous elections. Yes, that, 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 that segues us into uh, our next segment, which is our possibly futile attempt to understand and explain what should be a uh, remarkable experiment in flawed democracy. Parliamentary elections begin on the 28th and continue for, it feels like, the next 18 months. But in reality, this should all be wrapped up sometime in January. There's going to be three rounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, January 10th is the last day of the electoral period for what we're talking about today, which is solely the lower house of parliament, the People's Assembly. Because after that, there's going to be the short council, and then, and then after that, perhaps some other elections. But, but um, And the reason it takes place in three rounds is because it, uh, there is judicial supervision in Egypt. People only, people trust judges um, to, to um, guarantee uh, clean elections and so judges will supervise and so because of the number of judges, the limited number of judges, that it has to be done in three rounds. So past elections in 2000, 2005 and, and before that were, were done this way in three rounds. So, 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 so the period, it, that's not new. What is new is this hybrid system. Uh, basically, uh, to give you just a, a brief history of the uh, electoral system under, under Mubarak, uh, in, the, in the 80s, there was a proportional representation system. It was list-based. Um, in, I think it was 1990, the Supreme Constitutional Court, which is the Supreme Court of Egypt, decided that these elections were unconstitutional. This whole electoral system was unconstitutional because it didn't give, it didn't allow uh, uh, any individual candidates and, and independents uh, to run. So what happened is that they switched to the system they'd used until uh, last year, which is a British or American style system uh, of individual candidacies. They were usually two seats per district, and we'll come to that later. Mm -hmm. One district for professionals, one district for workers or peasants. That's a, something that came from the Nasser era. And, you know, it was a fairly straightforward uh, uh, electoral system with 222 districts producing 444 um, MPs plus 10 that were appointed 
by, by the parliament, and then in the last year they added 64 seats for uh, women, which which brought the whole thing to, if my math is is correct, I think of um, 518 seats. Something like that, yeah. yes. Um, in these elections, uh, after a series of debates, they have reintroduced the party list system. So this is where people vote for a party list, and then depending on how many votes that party gets, that determines how many of the candidates on their list get seats. And so this system is going to be mixed. It's going to be one-third individual candidates and two-thirds party lists. So the country is divided into individual candidate districts and party list districts. Voters will be going in and voting for both. Um, and uh, where, should, where should we start with, with some of the problems yeah. that, I mean, that we've uh, seen first, in this? Let's, let's start with the fact that, that, that as we were discussing prior to uh, pressing the record button, that the actual electoral law has been rewritten at least twice. I think there's been at least three drafts. Three. There was a draft issued in May, uh, and then it was amended in July, and it was uh, another draft in September, and every one of these has been very contentious. This question of whether to have party lists or have individual candidates is one of the things. Generally speaking, having party lists is considered to be a superior system, especially for emerging democracies, it gives uh, better chances to new parties and to people entering politics for the first time. The idea being that parties run, since people are voting for parties, they're voting for ideas, uh, ideas and platforms, and it's not just about how much support an individual can muster, because that favors sort of traditional powerful figures in a community who have networks and connections and can mobilize voters. And many of those traditional powerful figures in the community would would have been connected to the NDP, to the Mubarak regime, which is right. how they became powerful figures in the community. Right. So most of the new parties, and let's say the sort of progressive and revolutionary forces pushed for party list, and this went back and forth, and the proportions were you know constantly adjusted in these various drafts, and then we finally arrived at this one-third, two-third ratio. Um, so Although most... Parties were, I think, by the end of the summer, agreed that they wanted a hundred percent national uh, 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 party list party list system, but the the, the two thirds one thirds was the compromise that that the SCAF imposed. It's been this several month push and pull on this topic, in that that the the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, the generals who have been running the country since Mubarak uh, stepped down, uh, originally wanted a fifty fifty. Uh, individuals versus party lists, and the political forces here kind of rebelled against that. And it's for it's 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 been this this constant struggle, and and I've never quite understood why the SCAF was so devoted to keeping some level of of, of individual district elections, unless you want to take the the viewpoint that they're being devious and trying to keep as many uh, former NDP remnants around in the government. I'm not sure. There were various legal arguments deployed to justify that yeah. decision. 
uh, one is because of this previous Supreme Constitutional Court ruling. But the thing is, since there's no constitution, valid constitution at the moment, I don't think that that really applies. That always struck me as disingenuous, that argument. And this is just one of several issues in which um, there's been, you know, these long arguments and in the end, and, and much too late... So one of the problems is that the, the SCAF has not given the parties generally what they want or built a consensus around the election law. The other thing is that the, the rules coming out in this law have been delivered much, much too late. So they got the final draft out basically a month ago, and there are still things being clarified as we speak about how the system will work. So people are going into the elections with no clear sense of the of the rules of the game. One of the other uh, things about the Egyptian electoral system that people you know, suggested scrapping is this requirement that half of the 498 seats in parliament need to be filled by people who fall into the professional category of workers and farmers. And this, to qualify officially as a worker and farmer, you, are, you, you have to be certified by the government. There's this number of conditions. Now, people have have been certified to be workers and farmers who clearly were not. And, and, and this is one of the reasons that people wanted to get rid of this altogether. The SCAF has clung to this tooth and nail, and, and it remains... Again, a- for reasons that I've never fully understood, why they didn't just scrap this sort of relic, not even a relic of the Mubarak era, a relic of Nasser, really. It was, it, it, it's, it's, its usefulness was, was debatable and highly questionable you know, 10 years ago. So now I just don't get it. Again, their argument, I think, is that this is something enshrined in the Constitution, which, as Sandra said, doesn't make a lot of sense since the, since the Constitution, we, you know, the country is going to write a new one. Um, the conspiratorial argument is that it favors the people who are already certified to run in these categories and, and, and know how to, how to get that certification. It also introduces another level of complexity to the elections because since you have to have half of the parliament be people from this category, you can have a situation in which in a district two people win, neither one of them is a worker and a farmer, the second place person will not get their seat, and the worker and farmer with the highest number of votes will get it instead. So it's, you know, it, it, so it, it messes with the results in, in, uh, in, in surprising and seemingly undemocratic ways. Um, I mean... I, I think also it's probably... To, I mean, you know, in most countries, politicians are issued from the professional classes. Most politicians tend to be, uh, I mean, business. educated and, of some degree of means. Exactly, and and uh, uh, I, I think that's also probably true of most progressive parties, most most revolutionary revolutionary parties. Are ha, have attracted uh, a membership and, 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 and politicians who are doctors, engineers, journalists, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Um, and, and you know, I also wonder whether it has to have whether it has to do with the social sociolo- sociological profile mm-hmm. of uh, of the candidates. Most revolutionary parties, or so-called revolutionary parties, are mostly city-based and don't have strong rural backgrounds, so they may have trouble filling the the farmer category. So, so we have this complex and confusing system seemingly put together on the fly that we're heading into. However, it's more complicated than that. Oh, good. Because 
you know, so we, there's two different systems. There's the individual candidacies and there's the proportional representation. Okay? Correct. They're not in the same districts. Right. You know, what you have... Explain. ...is you, 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 have, you, you have 83 uh, districts <coughs> for individual candidacies where there's two seats per district, one professional, one uh, worker-peasant, and you have 46 proportional representation districts that are not so obviously they're not geographically the same so when you go to vote you know when 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 as egyptians like to say for is the egyptian equivalent of john doe or joe blogs when fulan fulan goes to vote he's voting for a list plus two individual candidates and these people are not in the same area well, they're in overlapping areas, but overlapping, their districts do but, not overlap oh. perfectly at all. Okay, I don't know about the listeners, but I already have a headache. Um, Wait, I'll... <laughs> it gets worse. Just to depress you more, so, and this redistricting was done um, by an army general in a completely untransparent way. Um, also, 75% of polling stations, we've been told, are going to be in new locations, and so people are going to have to find out... Because of the redistricting, the polling stations also, people are going to have to find out either on the website of this high electoral commission, which currently doesn't work, or at their local police station, where to go vote. The voter, there's been no voter registration, and um, there's been no uh, looking over of the infamously inaccurate voter lists. There's been no publishing of the lists of candidates running, which should be published in national newspapers according to law. We're three weeks away, and those lists haven't been published, so people don't know who's running in their district. Yeah, it's hard to find out who even all the candidates are. And candidates don't know who they're running against. Um, the, the organization that's supposed to be in charge of the elections is this high electoral commission, which is constituted of judges, they are, you know, we're talking about a handful of judges working, you know, in the evenings in their spare time. They have no resources. Yeah, they have the normal caseload during the day. Okay. No, no particular extra resources. There's been no voter outreach, no, no effort to, to inform voters about how the system works or to inform parties about how the system works. Okay, now in the midst of all this unrelenting, yes, in, in the midst of all this unrelenting darkness and, and, and confusion, I, I do feel the need to to mention that there are some you know bright spots you can you can you can hang your 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 hat on here, and that you do have this explosion of passion for the process. You do have dozens of new parties popping up and lots of young activists, lots of young committed, passionate people who couldn't really find their place except maybe among, you know, the activist ranks under Mubarak who are now trying their hand. You know, we we you know, this is young, educated people who care about the country who are becoming first time parliamentary candidates and are probably going to get stomped. But are going to learn, are going to cut their teeth, are going to get their name out, and hopefully will come back again in five years and, and, and become this new politicized generation yeah. that Is Egypt it? needs. And one of, one of the, the hilarious uh, side effects of this, that for me at least, I, I might be the only one who's super entertained by this, but the symbols 
that the parties and the candidates are using and that Egypt has a very high illiteracy rate. So in any election, the symbol, each candidate has their own symbol. And previously under Mubarak, there was so few parties and so few people even really trying to crack the corridors of power that it was a very simple collection of symbols. One guy would have a camel, the other guy would have a crescent, some guy would have a Ramadan lantern. Okay, now we're getting the wildest, most amusing symbols. There's candidates, There's a. I, uh, we have a flyer here for uh, Muslim Brotherhood, Freedom and Justice Party, where one guy is a blender. The other guy, the, 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 the other candidate on the ticket is a washing machine. There is a candidate in Mahdi. Uh, I can't remember what party he represents. His symbol is a tank on the poster, on every poster. I'm loving this. And I think it is indicative of the fact that politics in Egypt is becoming much more widespread and diversified. There's more people trying to get in and maybe most of them won't be allowed to get in, but they're going, I hope they keep trying. Can we go back to the doom and gloom now? Yeah, yeah I'm done. Okay, because I'm okay. That's, that's a silver lining is that people are excited. People are excited since February, of course, since the revolution, there was this massive of uh, enthusiasm. And I think these people deserve better. They deserve better elections. The Egyptian people deserve better, better prepared elections. So it's, it's true. And, and I think also, if you want to participate in politics, you have no choice. These are the elections. It's now or never. Plus, although parties may have gotten together and, and, and said, okay, no, let's get these elections right. Let's postpone them. That's what they did in Tunisia. After all, they postponed the elections from June to October. Uh, here, it's a race against time to get the scaff out of power. That's what it's become. That's what it became a couple of months ago, I think, and that there were people who were on that side from the beginning of the revolution. And then I felt a turning point a month or two ago. And Maspero, I think, turned it. Maspero, the, the attacks at the Israeli embassy, where I just felt like even the people who were saying, let's take our time and get this right, kind of shifted, a, a percentage of them shifted to, okay, let's just get... And elect. Let's get some elections going. Let's get the generals back to their barracks and let's try to fix this thing because it's not going to fix itself the way it's currently going. Well, because the generals prove that their 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 interest and their understanding of the democratic process is so limited that you could give them another six months and there's no guarantee that that would actually make the process any better. But I feel like the people I'm talking to. Uh, whether, you know, average people on the street, I've spoken to quite a few who've said they're not going to vote. And we'll really? See. That surprises yeah, me. People who say, like, how am I supposed to pick between all these parties? Or, like, nothing's going to change. Or, like, you know, it's going to be a mess. Or, like, these, you know, these elections, like, no, this is a joke. I mean, we'll see. I think there'll be a high turnout. And people's mood and their sense of, of how safe it is and how, how, you know, whether they want to go down and actually vote, you might actually not find that out till the day of. But also speaking to people in political parties, I think the attitude is like, well, we've got to do this. But like everybody says it's a mess. Everybody says like this is unbelievable. But like what else are we going to do? We, we got to give it a shot. But y y you know what I mean? The confidence in the process is really low. It's just a kind of like, well, you know, what else are we going to do? Like we're not going to boycott them. We can't keep them, going so the way we've been going. Yeah. Let me tell you the extent of, uh, of this problem of confidence in, in the process. I met recently with people who met people from the, the, the electoral uh, committee. Okay. Uh, the electoral committee members themselves are unsure about the legal process by which the elections will take place. They're, they mention a concern 
and this is really the cherry on the cake for me, that, you know, because they tried to address a problem that showed up in the referendum in May, that the ink was too weak, they've made the ink stronger, but they're afraid that now it may be toxic. Oh. This is the ink that people dip their oh. finger in because you don't have voter registration to make, keep people from voting more than yeah. once. There is. We're, we're, we're not really putting this out on the podcast that the ink may be toxic, are we? Well, oh. you know, I'm, uh, this, is, this is one concern is that, is that they've made it extra, extra strong. And um, the, the other problem is, and this is quite hard to explain uh, on, on a podcast, and I urge you to read the report on the elections put out by IFES. Uh, the link will be on, on the blog post. IFES, the, which stands for? International Foundation for Electoral Systems. I dealt with them in, the, in Iraq prior to the elections there. And yeah. uh, yes, they've put out a sort of... Uh, Primer yeah. that 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 is required reading. It's www.ifes.org, correct? I believe so. But we'll pro- we'll provide the link on the uh, on on the blog post that with the podcast. And um, I mean, we're basically. It's not clear yet how the tallies the the, the vote counts for the proportional representation districts will be done. First, it's not clear whether they're going to be done after each round, and it looks like probably we won't have a real picture of um, the results until uh, all elections have been completed, because there's this idea of a threat of a national threshold for parties to, to, to win seats, uh, even if a party wins a seat in a district uh, if it doesn't meet nationally 0.5% of the, of the national vote, it, it doesn't qualify for a seat, so we may have results changing in January uh, once this is all complete. And on top of it, there is a possibility, uh, uh, and this paper explains it, I urge you to read it, that according to different methods of counting the votes, may make the difference between let's say in a, in a, in a PR district in a, 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 where a list, where, where there's four seats and the list gets two of them, the, 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 the strongest one, by some counting methods, it might get all of them. And what this means in real terms is where, you know, in, in a country where they, we, we think, we believe, we have no reliable information and polling and so on, but we don't really know Egypt's true political map, but we think that the Muslim Brotherhood is going to do pretty well. Let's say in a, in a district in Alexandria, it might get two out of four seats. But if the rules are interpreted in another way, it's going to get all seats. So we're talking about the difference between the Muslim Brotherhood doing, let's say, 30% would be a good result for them now, or 80%. And, and it's not clear yet to, to, the, to, the, to, to, to an institution like IFAS to the election monitors, the, the leading which world way, experts on elections, which way, which how the votes are going to be counted, like they still don't know, and we're three we're three weeks away. Is there going to be anything in the realm of monitoring? The Carter Center is going to have some people here, several, but I think several centers are going to have some NDI, people. NDI National Democratic Institute is sending in some sort of a team. There's others. Are they going to be allowed into polling places? I thought we talked. Yeah, um, they- yeah, yeah. They are going to be allowed in, into polling places. And okay, in, good, and, good. And, and in fact, I, I got this email. Um, uh, what was it? Yesterday, 
that says that, that they're going to be, here, here's the quote that they have. We have been assured by the Supreme Judicial Commission for Elections that, despite being identified as witnesses or followers, our delegation will be provided the access we deem necessary to provide a credible and impartial assessment of the conduct of the election, as we have on previous, previous missions around the world. So The only caveat to that would be that the elections are actually going to be run by the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Defense. And, you know, the Supreme Judicial Commission for Elections has what authority it has, but on the ground, we're going to have to wait and see till the actual election day whether this will actually happen or not. Because they're not the ones running the logistics of the elections. And in every polling station, there's going to be police and army who are actually going to decide who gets in and who in every, doesn't. In every polling station, as we've seen in previous elections, no matter what the Electoral Commission says, it's going to come down to the mood of whatever officer is standing at the door of whatever polling place. Well, whatever instructions he he's in. gotten, whatever uh, instructions he's gotten. Whatever instructions. I mean, uh, uh, the judge is going to be inside. The judge isn't the going judge to be is at the door. The judge is going to be inside, but the judge usually is the person who has the most authority in a particular polling station. Yeah, but we've all covered elections where the judge was sitting inside and the polling sure. station was barricaded by police and the voters couldn't get in and the sure. judge is just sitting in there alone. You know, doing nothing because there's nothing he can do. I mean, yeah. we'll see. I, that's the scenario that we really don't want to see repeated is that kind of like extreme state intrusion where people are literally not being allowed to go into polling stations. That's, you know, the one thing that hopefully shouldn't happen in these elections. Mm -hmm. I think the, the people from the Carter Center and other international observers, as well as domestic observers, but I think especially people like the Carter Center are going to be in a tough spot because, you know, in a sense, what they do is certify elections. And they're going to have to be in a position in January where they're going to have to say these elections were run this way when they haven't had the opportunity to do the long-term monitoring that they uh, usually do months before the elections because they were only given uh, right normally normally now. places like the Carter Center they don't just show up two weeks before the elections they they're they're laying groundwork months in advance and they have not been able to do that here correct yeah that, that, that that's correct I mean they only have about 20 people uh, in the whole country anyway so it's mm -hmm. not like uh, one of these elections that's massively monitored like Tunisia was uh, and on top of it um, they're, they're uh, you know they're in a position where if they say something negative it's potentially destabilizing to the political process in the, in the country and so on so I don't know I think they're in a tough spot but um, the uh, well what, what else is wrong with this election there was there, there was something else that was on top of my mind oh the list goes on but we can save some for, for there will be there will be more there will be mean, more there's, there's there's plenty of examples and, you know basically. The problem is, and, and you know, so, some columnists and some commentators are, are pointing this out vociferously now. The, the problem is everybody is moving forward. The election observers, the candidates themselves, the whole country is going into these elections in which they have very little confidence, but which sort of feel like the, the, the only exit from the current situation. And, you know, everybody's kind of holding their breath while, like, well aware of 
you know, the enormous logistical legal, because there's going to, there, there are already, you know, court cases surrounding people's candidacies, and there are going to be tons of contested candidacies. You might end up with a parliament in which a third of the members are being sued, you know, because they, on, on the, the validity of their candidacy, because there are former members of President Mubarak's party running, and some people say they shouldn't be allowed to. I mean, so you're going to have, you know, enormous questions surrounding this, but, you know, everybody sort of feels like they have their back against the wall. The question that remains is why were these elections planned this way? And, you know, why was there so little interest in, in, in giving people the, you know, the, the right information at the right time, in, in ensuring, uh, you know, that there would, these would be a smooth, uh, well-organized elections that would encourage voter turnout? And, you know, you come down again and again to the problem, is, 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 it, is it mismanagement or bad intentions? Yeah. But I, I, Frankly, I, I find it embarrassing for Egypt that these elections are so badly run. I mean, e sure, Egypt, you know, Egypt and Egyptians don't have the, the, the reputation of being the best managers of anything. Uh, Follow through speaking, and attention to detail. And, and the, the last minute putting it together thing. But this is important. This is Egypt. after a revolution. This is, you know, this country has tons of competent people. Uh, there's no reason that Tunisia did it. Now, even if this is a bigger and more complicated country, there's no reason that more attention couldn't have been given. And, and I think the, the blame has to lie squarely with the military on this. It's, it's, it's their fault. And you and, have people now describing these elections as a joke. Uh, you know, describing them as as as, the, as sloppily organized. They're um, discrediting the democratic process, and maybe that's the point. Maybe that's, that's the, scary the point. Thing. It's like, look, look. You know, you guys want democracy? Check it out. It's going to be the messiest, most dangerous, most contested, most confusing process. You know, have fun for the next three months trying to figure out where your polling station is, voting for somebody who gets disqualified. You know. Yeah. And, and in the meantime, I think it's important to point out that the, the political context to these elections and, and the, the current period is one where we're basically right now, since uh, yesterday, in a position of a showdown between uh, a number of parties, Islamists and secular, and the military over these super constitutional principles. We mentioned it last week in the podcast, but what, just to update you, uh, the super constitutional principles are a, a list of principles that would be adopted in the next uh, constitution that, 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 uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that parliament will, will be involved in um, drafting. And uh, the <coughs> army tried to impose several points in there, including uh, not giving oversight to parliament or even the president of its budget and things to do with the composition of the future constituted assembly, uh, very few points that were contested. And what happened uh, yesterday was that the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, several others basically said to the government, you have three days to withdraw these fully and to resolve this issue, or on Friday we're going to have another million men march. And I think it's significant because, and even, even if this is a largely Islamist-driven uh, protest, it's the first time that the Muslim Brotherhood f fully part says it, it will fully participate in the march, I think since uh, before last summer. Uh, several uh, of the secular parties have defected from the secular position that they want these super-constitutional principles 
and, and have side, now sided with the Brotherhood, so there's an emerging consensus there. Uh, and also the Salafists uh, say, say, say they'll participate massively. So, you know, we're looking at possibly the biggest demonstrations since uh, the ones, the, the occupation of Tahrir in July. Yeah, Friday, Friday could be big in Tahrir. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it yeah. goes and we will report uh, back. And the psychological dimension of this is that basically that the, the political forces, and I, I, frankly, I like seeing that. I like, even if it's the most brother, I'm not a huge fan of theirs, but... Uh, that that they're they're taking the initiative to issue an ultimatum. Yeah, like although the unfortunate thing is that when this idea of the sort of constitutional principles was first floated, it was it was the idea was that um, since there's going to be elections before you write the country's constitution, um, so basically you're going to have elections before you have the f foundations of, of government set. The idea was we're going to have this list of sort of basic democratic principles, basic human rights that everybody can agree on, and that whoever gets elected, you know, this, these are our foundations. That didn't seem like a bad idea to me, and Muhammad al-Baradai proposed this, the Sheikh of Al-Azhar agreed with it. You know, a lot of people suggest this. Then it turned into... Um, a kind of secular versus Islamist battle where the Islamists who are confident that they're going to do better in the elections and the secularists say, no, it's got to be will of the people. We're going to write the constitution as, you know, as we agreed upon after we get elected, the assembly will write it. Then the military jumped in and turned turned the whole thing around by making it not about so much about guaranteeing you know basic shared principles but by trying to enshrine you know its own uh, above the law status sort of muddied the waters further so now people have to choose uh, you know the the whole idea that originally this was which was like let's let's talk about some fundamental political and economic and social uh, rights has gotten forgotten, and people have to oppose this because the SCAF used it as a power grab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's too bad. I mean, the, the, the super constitutional principles issue should have been much simpler. You know, there's, there's no real big points of disagreement uh, fundamentally between the, uh, the across the political spectrum on what they should be. You know, it's, it's about human rights. It's about uh, it completely recognizes that you know Islam is a religion of state and so on, and, mm -hmm. you know, and there's no that debate has been resolved. So, so, so it's about the Islamist sphere, and they were right about this, at least as far as the Muslim Brothers is concerned, that this would be used by the army to impose some other things, and they turn out to be right about it. Well, now uh, aside from all the back and forth on a sort of high level logistical end, the campaigns are. In full swing, the the banners are all over Cairo, and uh, we have begun uh, starting to cover actual campaign events. Uh, Ursula, I believe you uh, attended a, a, a Freedom and Justice Party, the Muslim Brotherhood's new party uh, rally or event recently. Tell us about it. Yeah, a few nights ago, I got an email. I'm not sure, but I've you know, like most journalists, covered the Muslim Brotherhood a lot, so I must be on one of their contact lists and was invited to uh, march in Mbeba. Mbeba is one of the biggest uh, so-called informal neighborhoods of Cairo. It's just absolutely enormous, uh, densely packed, dirt-paved 
uh, warren of red brick buildings. Yeah, millions there's, there's millions. as many people in Mbeba as there are in half a dozen. Yeah, there, 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 there's half a dozen Arab countries that have smaller populations than Mbeba. And the Muslim Brotherhood is very good at being very present in neighborhoods like this, in, in, in low-income neighborhoods. So um, And have been offering social services for decades, medical, uh, free medical care, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff have been laying this groundwork for, for, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't know that much about what kinds of services uh, they offer, but certainly they offer some. And then in election season, they often offer more. Sure. I mean, all parties do. So, so it's one way of building support. Um, so, you know, I went to that they had they had this march of men and women. Women were very visible, which was interesting. Okay, there was a big female contingent to the march. Uh, and they just go through the neighborhood for several hours. What they're trying to do is make sure that people know their symbol, so they know what symbol to look for on the list if they're illiterate. And Was just, this the blender and washing machine people? No, they were, yes, that's the candidate symbol, and then the party symbol is a balance. A scale. Yeah, a scale. And uh, so I spoke to um, one of the candidates. Uh, his name is Amru Darreg. And uh, he uh, he out he uh, gave me his little stump speech. Let's hear a bit. So you're running in this district? Yeah, I'm running in this district, and Dokia uh, Naguza, Dokia Naguza Mbeba. And have you run before? For no, that's, this is my first time. And uh, but you were a member of the Brotherhood, and yes. now you're a member of the party. That's right. I'm secretary general of the party in Giza, ah. for Giza, the whole area. I see. So what is this election going to be about? What are the issues here in this neighborhood? The main issues to the, to, is to unify the Egyptian people towards achieving uh, the, the priorities of the Egyptian society, uh, meaning to, to, uh, to start to resume the democratic process, to establish proper democratic uh, uh, organizations and structures, to ach uh, achieve security for the Egyptian people, to um, uh, have the economic wheel rerun. In Does that include transitioning from military to civilian government? Definitely. This is the first step. Of course, yeah. We, we, we strongly are for uh, having presidential elections not later than April or May of next year so that we have a smooth transition of power from the military to the civil uh, organizations, yes. And once you're in parliament, do you think you'll, be, you'll have real power and be able to pressure for things? Definitely, it would be, it would be a legitimate uh, a constitutional establishment, having a power, the power of people, being elected from the people, whether, whether I am or any, any other uh, colleague, you know. We will have the power, which is, uh, this would be much more powerful than the, the, the force in the high square. Uh, rather than having a million people uh, rally to, for, for a certain demand, if I represent one million people, I can speak for them and, and, and represent their, uh, their requirements and their demands. What, what do you say to people who are worried that the elections are going to be a mess, they're going to be chaotic, they're going to be violent? I'm sure they won't be. I'm, I'm sure they won't be. Because the Egyptian people who, who have gone through this revolution, who have provided all these sacrifices in order to, to have their freedom, they will not be... They, they, I'm, I'm sure they are not uh, willing to give this up. They will uh, defend their, uh, their uh, gains, their achievements uh, with their souls if they have to. Okay? But I'm sure that uh, I mean, there are some exaggerations regarding security during election time, and I'm sure it's going to be smooth, inshallah. Mm. Right, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. He was very well spoken and, uh, and uh, 
you know, the, the, the picture of a Democrat? Look, the Islamists always are. I mean, they tend to be. Everybody I talked to, I also spoke for quite some time with a female supporter of the march there. And, you know, one thing that's notable is they speak actually very little of religion. Yeah, that about, was interesting. There wasn't a lot of God talk there. They talk a lot about, you know, social services, an end to corruption, you know, justice, uh, you know, fixing up the neighborhood, giving people, making, the, improving the country, putting Egypt into the state, you know, which is the place that it deserves to be. You know, they talk about being open to other parties, that they don't want to dominate, that they don't want to dictate. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's just the classic kind of reassuring discourse that, that Islamist parties uh, try to have. And, and, you know, to play devil's advocate, Lord only knows what's being said in mosques or, you know, in sermons around the country. But, but I you would know, say, you have yeah. to judge them on the public face they're putting forth. And, and it is not heavily religious so far. When they're on the campaign trail. I mean, certainly we've all seen in the last eight months some, like, pretty obnoxious statements from, from yes. the Brotherhood about secularists, about other parties. Um, you know, even their defense of, of human rights, I would say, has been disappointing, considering that they were an, an oppressed group themselves under Mubarak. I mean, one of the big differences in this election is that the Brotherhood can actually run. This is huge. What we're all used to is covering elections where, like, the Brotherhood is the only real party in the country really trying to play politics, and they're shut. They're mostly shut out. They're pretty strongly repressed. You and I, Ursula, attended a march last uh, last year for the parliamentary elections in what November 2010 with a Brotherhood candidate. We were marching through Shubran Khima district with uh, the candidate, uh, former MP. He was in Parliament, and uh, at the time, uh, Mohammed Beltagi, who's now a senior guy in the Freedom and Justice Party, and it all looked very democratic and and normal. And then at the tail end of the night, we got picked up by by Amnadona, by by you know state nice. security, and detained for a very tedious sort of twenty minutes while they checked our IDs and uh, and, and and told us not to come back. And and, and 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 told us not to come back. And and had I had one guy on the phone, General Ahmed. I will always remember. Someone handed me a phone, one of the officers, and it was General Ahmed, being just the friendliest guy in the world, who who said, "It's like no, no, of course you're welcome to to do whatever you like." But next time you come to Shubran Khima, it would be best if you let us know so we can arrange an escort for your protection. You know, so it was like they were kind of allowed to campaign, but then at some point the hammer comes down and there's always the presence. There's always this limiting factor of the government. So now that's gone. They're just plain campaigning. And they're really good at it. I mean, that's the thing is, even under difficult circumstances, they were good at it. They're organized. They do good outreach. They know how to talk to the press. I mean, the day after I attended this march, they took my contacts when I was there. They emailed me a, a file of photos from the march the next morning. They're like public relations. Oh, I don't guy. even know. I, I mean, I'm getting emails from the Freedom and Justice Party, and I don't remember how I got onto their email list. I mean, I interviewed a couple of their guys and gave out a business card, but it wasn't, there was, you know, I've also interviewed people from other parties, and I haven't gotten onto their email list. They're very proactive. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, they're talented politicians, that's for sure. I wonder if there's the possibility, I mean, this is another thing, but these elections, that's kind of a big question that's looming there. No, they're too good. You know, the selections is very hard to predict. Mm -hmm. And if uh, the Brotherhood does a lot better than, uh, than expected, if uh, also the Brotherhood plus Salafists plus other Islamists, 
ends up being, I think, more than 60% of the result, we're looking at panic. That's going to seriously... I think panic is not overstating it. I panic think. in foreign capitals, panic uh, among the military, panic among the Egyptian elite, panic among cults. Yes. And... I think you know, 40%... Above, I think I think the panic threshold is is just north of forty percent. Forty percent. I mean, Brotherhood plus Salafists, you get there very quickly. I think you're looking at above sixty percent. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, the, the thing is, mood is maybe fifty percent is the thing. If if the majority of the next parliament is Islamist, even if the Muslim brothers and the Salafists are not in the same alliance together. Uh, it's going to be something that's, go that's going to make a lot of people nervous. And I even wonder if, you know, the scenario, the Algerian scenario of cancelled elections by the military is not something that's, uh, that could happen. I think it's far more likely that you'll see a, an alliance between the military and the Brotherhood than a, than a, than a cancellation. I, mean, I don't know. The Brotherhood, you've seen, they're, they're having this falling out now. The Brotherhood wants to really run the show. They think they've earned it. They think that they speak for the majority. They think it's their turn. The military has proven really, really bad at power sharing. I think that at some point they are going to genuinely lock horns because the, the, the Brotherhood has just, they have let a lot of things go in the last eight months, more than they should have, I think. Mm -hmm. But on the expectation that when this transfer to civilian authority happens, it's a transfer to them. That they're going to get a significant, they're going to get to play a significant role that they've been preparing for for you know the last 30 years. I don't think that they are ready to not for that, and 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 the military I don't think is is ready for a transfer of power. So I don't see them having an easy alliance. Okay. Anyway, we'll you know that's something to follow up. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll be, be checking in with some of the other parties as uh, mm -hmm. you know in 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 future podcasts and. Uh, and after half the country gets poisoned by, by toxic electoral ink, we'll be uh, reporting from a, from a, a post-apocalyptic uh, electoral landscape here in Egypt. So yep. uh, we have that to look forward to as well, everybody. That'll be fun. Uh, just a few notes before we sign off. Uh, first is, we haven't done this for a while, but please do write to us at podcast.arabis.net with any questions you have, any suggestions. Anything that you'd like us to talk about, it really helps us get we this love whole feedback. process going. We like feedback. Uh, the other thing is uh, that I haven't done yet is uh, you may have noticed when you visit the site, there's a donate button there. Uh, please do donate what you can occasionally to the site. It helps the site going. It helps this podcast going. All the time we put in it, the equipment that we've bought to, uh, you know, make it sound uh, as halfway decent. Halfway decent, so that so that you you don't have to strain your ear. Um, it really helps. Also, if any listener out there wants to take up advertising on the podcast, that's something we'd be happy to do. So uh, do, do, do help out if you can, and do let us know what you think. Uh, on that note, I think that's, uh, that's it for us. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week after the, this Friday's Million Man March. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.